From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. What the book is about is like, what are the trial and error strategies after the failing of the Communications Act for educators to maintain the vision of what it means to be a non-commercial public service model while actually being functional, right, in that lake. The culmination of that 20 years or so becomes this archive that they called the Bicycle Network. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to welcome to the show Josh Shepard. He's an assistant professor of media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder and director of the Sound Submissions Project at the Library of Congress. He is also the founding associate editor at Resonance, the journal of sound and culture published by the University of California Press. Today, we're talking about his excellent recent book, Shadow of the New Deal, The Victory of Public Broadcasting. Josh Shepard, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you for having me. So I have thought about radio for most of my life. I have worked in radio for a significant portion of my life and have been associated with public radio for a large amount of that time. I thought that I really knew the landscape and what the sort of origin of this medium was. I learned so much from your book, The Shadow of the New Deal. I'm so delighted to talk with you about it today, and I can't wait to jump in. And I want to help my listeners to have the same kind of eye-opening experience that I had. So as we begin to set the stage, I want to ask you to begin to draw for us at the early part of the 20th century. I guess many of us would imagine that radio just naturally evolved into the state that we encounter it today. You turn on the radio and you go from station to station and everything is just neatly organized and everything works on the dial. But it didn't start out that way and it took a lot of work to get it that way. And I think the place that I'd like to start is there were two laws that helped to begin to frame the landscape of radio as we know it today. One was in 1927. One was in 1934. I wonder if you could briefly tell us about those two laws and how they helped to begin to shape the landscape of radio. Yeah, thank you very much. So radio emerged as an extension largely of commerce around the uh, 1900s or so. Uh, The wireless telegraph was uh, a largely unregulated extension of an early wired service that we would associate with Western Union or something like that. And so when you look at the foundations of mass communications or mass media, it's immediately imbued with a non-theatrical approach. And so by that, when you think of later radio, later early radio, you get like Jack Benny and variety shows and whatnot. But before that, you have film 
which emerges almost immediately as a for-profit spectacle of a moving image of successive photography, as they called it at the time. And it was based in sort of a titillation of the illusion of movement, but not in a public service model or a public interest model. Radio was almost entirely logistical at its beginning. And so as it begins to evolve from ship to ship communication, where do we send the bananas, right? Which port? How do we wire certain money or messages about families into something that's more like a public uniting service? You end up with the need to regulate who is going to control the service when there are too many voices that want to occupy the service. Okay. So 1927 is the General Order 40, and General Order 40 was passed as a regulatory measure by the Federal Radio Council. And what it did was that it allocated a certain amount of usage to the infrastructure that was already in place, which was largely occupied by commercial media. And so what that meant was the beginning of American media policy is immediately inscribed with a deference to free markets and to commercial media because they owned the infrastructure and had some talent. And they framed this in terms of what they called public interest. And so this could be demarcated from something like, for example, public service. So immediately in 1927, um, we are a, a very different system than you get from the BBC. Uh, there's a total investment in an infrastructure being built by a third party private entity whose goal it is to profit. And so what happens is in between 27 and 34, uh, there's a series of continued regulatory discussions. And then in 1934, we have the foundational communications and media policy for the country by which everything afterwards will be either an amendment or pursuant to is what they would say. And so that's the Communications Act of 1934. And the Communications Act ratifies the public interest model. And so they actually have a term for it, which was the public interest, convenience, and necessity. And what they, it's a rather preposterous sort of early nomenclature because they define public interest as in what public is interested in hearing. <laughs> it's not in what's good for the public, what the public needs. But if people are listening, then that's the good. And so it becomes coded, the policy, with this notion that the ownership of functionality and infrastructure supersedes purpose. So the beginning of all media policy in the United States is a sort of purposeless, technocratic approach as opposed to all the other possible ways that it could have been coded in its first regulation. So if I'm hearing you correctly, is this a sense of we're going to treat the spectrum of radio landscape as a kind of commons, but we're going to fence that commons in a way that we will hope that the market will figure it out? Or would you say it in a different way? No, I think that's really good. I, so, yeah, I think that there is this concept right before the New Deal in an early form of a libertarianism that the free markets will figure it out on its own, just right? There's not this sense that there's an obligation to media to reach every audience in a diverse way. There's not this sense that media has a purpose beyond 
the mere reaching of an audience in the ways that audiences are satisfied with at that moment. So yeah, what we have in 1934, right at the beginning of the New Deal, because we have New Deal sort of beginning around 33, is an extension of previous decades of discourse by which there's a consolidation attempted of the airwaves by commercial interests. And as those commercial interests are consolidating, there's, and you document this well in your book, The Shadow of the New Deal, there's another wave that is active at that same time. And those interests that are parallel to these commercial interests are various educational institutions that maybe have made an investment in some radio equipment and they have a kind of limited broadcast space and they're trying to find their way in this, let's call it a market. But initially, because the market is tilted towards these commercial interests and because the benchmarks for success in the spectrum are gauged to commercial interests, as I understand it, a lot of those early attempts at educational broadcasting folded because they were not able to meet the aesthetic and programming standards that had been set for more commercial broadcasting. Now, do I have that correct, or would you say it in a different way? No, that's great. So what we have simultaneous to the emergence of commerce taking an interest in wireless telephony right at the time. So the wireless, which has now been regulated to a one-to-many model, which is all that broadcasting refers to, there was this also simultaneous concept that came out of compulsory education. And so compulsory education being you have to go to school, those laws aren't actually fully ratified at state levels until the 19-teens. People didn't have to go to school in every state until roughly the same time that we get the emergence of broadcasting in general, which is 1920, 1921. So educators just literally saw radio as a completely different kind of technology than an entertainment and advertising medium. They said, well, what if we were able to reach farmers who lived maybe 30, 40 miles away from the university who deserve equal access to education, but can't at the end of a long day take the horse and buggy into the University of Wisconsin or Ohio State or something like that, and then do a night class, which they called adult education. And just for the record, adult education referred to 16-year and older. It wasn't the same way we think about it now. So educators had this concept, really what we would call now distance learning. They had a distance learning vision that was closer to instruction through a microphone than the kind of aesthetic flows that you get where you have content and advertisement content, advertisements weaved into the content, and singing and theater, which is a really great model in itself. And, but all of this begins to take place against the backdrop of what they called frequency scarcity at the time, which meant there was only so many channels on the AM band in particular per location. And so what happens is because of the policies and the relative aesthetic and technical mastery of radio, commercial broadcasting gobbles up all of the frequencies pretty early in the story. And educators are this very idealistic but very underprepared group at that moment in the history. And what you have, uh, what's happening in 1934 is that you have maybe a hundred educational stations trying to do educational extension work through radio and uh, roughly 70, 75 of them 
lose their frequencies through the Communications Act because they don't have the technical specifications that are dictated by the public interest mandate. So it's like a tedious point, but the key point here is that there was no reason to wipe out the entire educational infrastructure by media in 1934, except that the technocratic terms that were set by the policies made it an accidental necessity. So the backdrop in 34, about 1935, is that you have this group of educators who are really just flabbergasted that they're not allowed to actually provide educational services to their state under their own state mandates. And that is like the ground zero and beginning of this notion of what kind of non-commercial and educational system might we create under this new regime. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Josh Shepard. He is Assistant Professor of Media Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder and Director of the Sound Submissions Project at the Library of Congress. We're talking today about his recent book, Shadow of the New Deal, The Victory of Public Broadcasting. I want to stay for a moment with this characterization you've given that the early educational radio broadcasters were idealistic but underprepared. In your book, Shadow of the New Deal, you bring out the educational theorist John Dewey and this idea of intentional agencies. And so what I'm hearing you saying is that the educational broadcasters, when they had these large amount of licenses ripped away, they were caught kind of flat-footed. They had to learn to begin to organize to try and create a space for, if you will, a form of broadcasting for democracy. That's my phrase. But I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how the educational broadcasters began to learn to organize such that in 1934, they could advocate and lobby for a real public interest wing of the control and the laws of broadcasting. Yeah, I think the key point in the very nerdy previous literature and discourses that we have in the academy was that it was assumed that free markets just destroyed education. And what I found is that educators themselves didn't feel like they understood or were doing a good job with utilizing radio within the properties of radio itself. So a different way to put that is that radio is a conversational, intimate medium, and people's imaginations take a lot of role in the creation of meaning when they're listening. And what they were doing instead was typically something more like just talking at an audience that they didn't understand before 34. And besides that, they didn't really have the finances from universities to maintain transmitters and all these other behind the scenes things that are actually very important to radio history. So what happens is in 34, they begin to take stock and they say, well, we can't believe that this experiment in equal access to education has been removed from the country on the most part, except for a few choice, really big 10 universities in the Midwest. Uh, But they say, we weren't really doing a great job anyway. So how can we then regroup? And then what do we even stand for? And so, and this is really, I think what's interesting to me about working on this history is part of compulsory education, just as a state law, means that education is free. It's that simple. There's a philosophy behind that begins to emerge And intentional agencies uh, in the Deweyan concept, the belief is that there should be a relationship within a community by which the different parts of the community are in communication with each other. So the way that a community functions relies upon various kinds of labor, thoughts and organization around the labor, 
And Dewey's belief was that you could use two institutions in specific to ameliorate those conditions. And so one of those, of course, is education and compulsory schools that are emerging while he's writing. And then the other is journalism, typically. Those are the two big uh, intentional agencies that he's talking about. And around Dewey's thought and this idea that, okay, we are nonprofit. Our goal is to simply provide educational access. Something like a philosophy of education begins to emerge that undergirds the possibility of public media and non-commercial media. Uh, So you have the emergence of what I would call a concept of non-commercial media in the 1930s, by which instead of simply trying to become more like a commercial station, all the different university stations and school district stations double down that the non-commercial and the non-profit model is in fact the identity and genres of broadcasting should consequently follow from that model. So the distance learning of math or language or uh, music appreciation or what they would have called at the time cultural uplift. So like Shakespeare or something like that performed. Like these became modes of reaching audiences for the purposes that they identified with sustaining the experiment. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Josh Shepard. He is Assistant Professor of Media Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder and Director of the Sound Submissions Project at the Library of Congress. He's also the founding associate editor at Resonance, the Journal of Sound and Culture, published by the University of California Press. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Shadow of the New Deal, The Victory of Public Broadcasting. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find more than 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with Josh Shepard. He's an assistant professor of media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. He's the director of the Sound Submissions Project at the Library of Congress. And he's also the founding associate editor at Resonance, the Journal of Sound and Culture, published by the University of California Press. Today, we're speaking about his recent book, Shadow of the New Deal, The Victory of Public Broadcasting. One of the things that fascinated me about your book, The Shadow of the New Deal, is that it has parallel intentions or it's operating from parallel theses. One of those theses, one of those intentions that we've already begun to talk about in the first segment is the history of the shaping of what we might call now public radio and the public radio landscape. But there was a second and parallel history that you are digging into here, and it's the history of the way in which we use media archives to really help us understand how media functions, this landscape that is so powerfully influential on our thinking and our interacting, 
And you make the case that it is really not the archives of commercial broadcasting that help to give us access to the mechanics of how this landscape functions on our psyches. But really, you have made the case that going into the archives of public broadcasting and educational broadcasting unlocks a treasure trove for understanding how we are influenced by media. Now, first of all, I want to make sure that I've understood that thesis correctly, and please feel free to state it in a different way if I haven't. But if I am correct, I'd love for you to say more about that. Yeah, thanks. Well, the foundation of public media, when it really begins to work, was in its distribution models, and that meant creating a kind of archive of what they believed to be the best practices or best programming. So yeah, after 34, uh, the first concept was, okay, we've got one good broadcast on our station. That would be their own self-reflection after they lost their licenses. We're in Iowa and our friends up in Minnesota have two good shows. What if we were to exchange our broadcasts and then without needing the advertising dollars begin to build a decentralized infrastructure for the kinds of genres that would be different than commercial media and then provide public service. So what they started with was a shortwave relay. And for those who have used shortwave, that is, it must have been one of the more difficult possible ways to run a radio station. And they actually ran into problems pretty early with that model. This is about 1935, 36, because even at the time you had to give like a top of the hour station ID, an identification of what you're listening to for the licensure. And you ended up with the wrong station licensure being stated in different states. And so they realized that this logistically simple relay of broadcasts, because they didn't own the wires, right, that NBC owned, would not work. And so they got this concept where, what if we just literally pressed records, like vinyl records, it would have been shellac back then, and then just exchanged them with each other. And we all had one or two broadcasts. And they began to do that pretty early, about 37, 38, they're already beginning to exchange what they call program transcriptions. And of course, what happens is a few stations are in with each other. You have the Big Ten stations in particular that I mentioned before, but then there's these fledgling stations in Texas, in New England, and they had to create a mechanism that would resemble something like a commercial network. So you have a centralized institution, the centralized institution has what they call internally an economy of scale. What does that mean? It means there's all these different divisions working for the common goal of the audience hearing the sound or just hearing the content. But then there's all these divisions that function otherwise, mostly individually or in isolation uh, towards that goal. And so what they settled on was eventually the creation of an archive that was like the clearinghouse by which different stations around the country could air the same content for literally $2 per record. They could just buy a bunch of records and then air them. And then suddenly you begin to get like the feel of what becomes non-commercial media. You get an entirely different genre structure that's focused on uh, education. You get better quality broadcasts coming from the centralized archive. And that would be something closer to what we would now think of as educational entertainment. You get some performance with the lessons. And then you also have this ability to govern what seems to be effective at educating audiences, not just entertaining them and not just instructing them. And so, yeah, the entire origins of non-commercial media become centered around 
essentially an archive that ends up by the early 1950s at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. Well, and I think listeners may be hearing some through lines to the current structure of, let's say, NPR, National Public Radio. So you may tune into your local station, but your local station is gathering broadcast programming from sometimes other stations and sometimes from national hubs like the main NPR distribution center. And so is it fair to say that the model that was pioneered from passing back and forth these $2 shellac records is the precursor to the way that we can see public radio operating today? Yeah. So over, and this is what the book is about, is like, what are the trial and error strategies after the failing of the Communications Act for educators to maintain the vision of what it means to be a non-commercial public service model while actually being functional, (laughs) right, in that way. The culmination of that 20 years or so becomes this archive that they called the Bicycle Network. That's what they called it internally in education or media. And eventually it becomes semi-centralized in an organization called the National Association of Educational Broadcasters. And they're centered at Illinois in the post-war era. And then they're working with WNYC and a guy named Cy Siegel on distributing nationally. So yeah, I, so what happens is eventually this notion that yes, every institution is independent as a university in a different state. Yes, programming has certain best practices and conventions, but that's to the discretion of the regional audiences in which they're being produced. We still see that uh, with regional broadcasts that become national. And yes, we need a, a central repository that unites a decentralized network. So by 51 or so, they do get that in order. And if you talk to people who are there at the beginning of NPR and PBS, 1970, 71, the bills, 67, they're going to point to that moment, the foundation of the archive at Illinois and the Bicycle Network as the beginning of NPR and PBS. And there's a little bit more to say about that, but I think yeah, the answer to your question is yes. Well, the other thing that really comes out very sharply in your book, Shadow of the New Deal, is that and I'm going to paraphrase how you say it, but you say it at several different points in the book, the commercial model of radio broadcasting is a market-driven model. But the model of non-commercial broadcasting, of educational radio broadcasting, is a model that is driven by mission statements. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more to my listeners about that. Yeah, one of the questions, so I spent a lot of years in archives trying to figure out what happened and why A lot of the boxes are what you call unprocessed in the archive world. Uh, So one of the beauties of a great history archive is that an archivist comes in and identifies what's in the boxes and gives you what they call finding aid so that you know where to look, you know where to start. A lot of these boxes I was looking in had no such finding aid. You just had to sit there for hours and figure it out. So when you're looking through these histories in all these different states, at the government level, in the regulatory notes, at the National Archives, you try to find through lines. You try to find people who are the heroes of the story, perhaps, or protagonists of the story. And there's no such figure for this history. And and in a way, I think that's actually the best part of the history, which is that you have this almost principle that everyone ascribes to that then attracts all of these institutional and individual agents to participate that never ends. It, It keeps going. It still goes today through the system. 
And so what you begin to see in this history is that this notion, equal access to education, equal access to education through technology becomes a rallying cry by which philanthropic groups, broadcasters, even some government agencies like the Office of Education in the 30s and 40s, grassroots, uh, leftist groups, uh, critics, all begin to work in parallel for the goal of equal access to education. And what it meant was figuring out essentially the logistics. It becomes a strategic question once they've already defined the conceptual goals in, that can unite um, in this decentralized way, these different movements and these different institutions. So, you know, when you get into commercial broadcasting, and I'm a big fan of commercial media, I watch HBO shows, you know, and I listen to, you know, the different, and the only stations when I was coming up was Dick Biondi in Chicago, and I'm from Chicago. And now, of course, it's like new wave music from the 80s, just the only stations. But I still listen to that stuff all the time. But the model is really accumulation is we're going to provide content. The content is a product. We're going to do survey testing on it at R&D, research and development. And then we're going to adjust the content through demographic research results. And, and then we're going to use that information with advertisers to then accumulate profit. That's the model. So the logic within commercial media is quite a bit different than this notion that people have rights and the technology serves a role in meeting those rights. And then consequently, the content that's produced needs to meet that mission in order for those rights to be achieved. So you have this early educational technology experiment with radio, it's pre-mass computer use, it's pre-television, and they have this vision of a better society that can be achieved through educational access. And so I think one of the big takeaways of the book is that you can't just imagine something and then have it be true. There are these experimental phases and there are these strategic goals that make something sustainable, like a mission statement, when you are up against something like a free market, which is very good at self-feeding itself or sustainability. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Josh Shepard. He's an assistant professor of media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder and director of the Sound Submissions Project at the Library of Congress. We're speaking today about his recent book, Shadow of the New Deal, The Victory of Public Broadcasting. One of the things that surprised me in your book, The Shadow of the New Deal, is that after the landscape of who gets which band on the dial settled out, there was not an antagonism between commercial radio and non-commercial radio in the way that one might have expected. Instead, commercial radio saw non-commercial radio as a way of offloading the public interest requirements that were built into the 1934 law that we've been talking about. And non-commercial radio began to adopt the aesthetics of commercial radio. I wonder if you could talk about some of the ways in which the non-competition of these two different approaches to radio medium worked to the advantage of both. Yeah. I, so one of the ways in which the history had previously been hedged, which I think is partly true over the battles for frequency scarcity. So people just wanted the stations, but it wasn't that commercial media was against non-commercial media or educational media. They just didn't want the competition because there was money to be made. That's how I see it. So once you hit about 34, 35, something uh, happens after the Communications Act that they didn't actually expect or want on the commercial side 
which is that they were uh, saddled with something that they call a sustaining broadcasting mandate. So what does that mean? It means that because the educators were no longer able to reach communities, they had to pick up where the educators were not allowed and where had they had left off. So this was immediately non-profitable for them. It didn't like that they weren't making money on these programs. And so, you know, why are certain kinds of programs on Sunday mornings, right? Well, that was the least amount of listenership and then viewership for radio and TV for sustaining media. And so you get a lot of explanations for why things are slotted the way that they are in mass media historically based upon those regulatory reasons. And so what happens is educators come to terms that they just need to understand how to reach their audience and keep the audience interested. And commercial broadcasters don't necessarily want to hold on to the stations with the impending arrival of FM radio and then later television in the 50s. So they begin to take educators in as interns. Educators realize they can begin to train people to work in commercial industries. And what you have is this beginning of a, a sort of a mutual goal of understanding why radio is effective. Because before the Communications Act, it was really an anecdotal kind of understanding of audiences. They would ask you to write letters and they would read them and work from there. But you begin to see the streamlining of educational methodologies and advertising methodologies after the Communications Act that lead to some very unexpected turns in public policy research through that synthesis. And then more so, it's just to see that relationship, it was important to break down that distinction between public and private because there was so much confluence due to the regulatory atmosphere after the act. And you mentioned the the sort of rise of metrics from the anecdotal landscape. And I was really fascinated that one of the watershed moments for this was a broadcast that I'm sure our listeners are familiar with, the Mercury Theater on the Airs production produced by Orson Welles and directed by Welles, of The War of the Worlds. And I wonder if you could tell us how that particular program began to change the landscape of audience metrics. Yeah, so something happens after the act, which is even, and this is important to note, so we always blame regulators for their decisions, and it's often deserved, or sometimes deserved. But the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, is formed by the act and is a regulatory, not policy-building body. That's the Senate passes the law, the FCC is built. The FCC strips the stations of their licenses because they're within their first six months and they have to. But they themselves can't believe that universities aren't allowed to reach students. So you have the FCC, then you have the Office of Education, and you have this new commissioner named John Studebaker, appointed by Roosevelt. And he wants to create something he calls public forums, which we now accept as a very common practice on media. But he can't. Even the government is not allowed to access media under the new laws. And so the FCC and Office of Education form something called the Federal Radio Education Committee, or FREC. And what they do is they bring together all the different interests, the government, the educators, and the commercial stations. And they include like David Sarnoff of RCA and NBC and William Paley, who found CBS. So very important people of the time. And they decide, well, the one thing we don't know how to do is know when, for example, an educational broadcast has succeeded at educating. We just don't know what the audiences think or how well it works. And then what they also realized is that they don't have standardized models 
on the commercial side either. They have this beginning of an auspice of an advertising demography model. So like age, sex, location, these kind of things that we all understand very well now with survey research. And so they start a project and the project is called the Princeton Radio Research Project, which in communications and sociology research circles is now viewed as a watershed moment of public policy research for its methodological innovations. So what are they really short? What do they get done? Is they realize at some point in just within the first year of the project of trying to understand educational listeners, that the demographic categories are too small. So they say, okay, we need to go from three or four categories of association to as many as the listener themselves can name. From there, they realize that there is actually a correlation between not just geography. So it doesn't matter if you live in Chicago or Milwaukee, right, or Joliet, and that's not instrumental for the decisions that you make. The way that you qualify yourself, so let's say 20 categories of who you are, your identity, is better predicting at how you'll respond to what they called stimuli or affect. So in other words, content, like the radio show that they were listening to. So the stimuli and its effect on you would be better predicted by the categories than your immediate affiliations. So one thing they, the next thing they realize then is that you can then triangulate responses in all kinds of different places, not just one place at once. And then finally, what they begin to realize is that once you understand how people typically respond to certain stimuli, you can actually predicate their behavior. And so the audience will, that's listening now, will immediately see, okay, when I roll over a certain thing on Facebook, I get an advertisement for it, right? It's like a similar kind of thing. Or you'll, you can see well, who buys what kind of cars. And so you immediately get advertising research, you get propaganda research, and all these other kinds of ways based on a predictive model that is based in demography. So the first thing tested that ends up being this accidental moment in which a young Orson Welles, who goes on to do Citizen Kane in film, he must be like 20 or 21, is doing a Mercury Theater broadcast. In the Mercury Theater, it's Halloween, and they're doing War of the Worlds. And they do this simple aesthetic maneuver, which is that at the time, you had the emergence of these new genres. You have journalism, you have theater, right? You have variety shows, but they had never been combined. And they do this simple trick what do they say on the internet? Like the one weird trick, right? Where they actually pretend within the theater that there's a breaking journalism story within it. And the way that people listen to radio is not that closely or it's very closely. It's like one of, they're either totally attuned or they're hanging out or washing dishes or doing other stuff around their house. And a certain percentage of people got super confused by it. And some thought it was actually an invasion of space aliens. Now, it wasn't as big of a number as the apocryphal story tells us, but it was a notable enough number that CBS goes to the Princeton Project and says, let's measure this. And one of the outcomes of the War of the World broadcast, besides that it becomes this watershed moment in mass media history because of the actual panic, was that they were able to prove that they could triangulate different demographic responses, the similarities of responses to different locations based upon the expansion of the categories. So this is like a nerdy thing to point to in the history. But what's so important about this, the takeaway is that this is the beginning of research and development for mass media industries, is they're able to not only know who's listening, in what way, and how they respond 
but how they will respond again in the future. And so really the 20th century is just imbued by this public policy research method of predicting audience behaviors based upon the introduction of stimuli. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Josh Shepard. He's an assistant professor of media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder and director of the Sound Submissions Project at the Library of Congress. He's also the founding associate editor at Resonance, the Journal of Sound and Culture, published by the University of California Press. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Shadow of the New Deal, The Victory of Public Broadcasting. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find more than 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with Josh Shepard. He is an assistant professor of media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder, and he's director of the Sound Submissions Project at the Library of Congress. He's also the founding associate editor at Resonance, the Journal of Sound and Culture at the University of California Press. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Shadow of the New Deal, The Victory of Public Broadcasting. Well, towards the end of your book, The Shadow of the New Deal, a particular figure emerges, Bill Seamring, who's the founding executive director of National Public Radio. And one of the things that you point out is that in the same moment as Seamring is looking forward to the future of National Public Radio, he is looking backwards to the long history of organizing and logistics that led to the point where National Public Radio could become a going concern. And so I, I want to ask you to begin to draw out for me and my listeners this organizational aspect, the ways in which this history of educational radio can help us understand how many different groups might think about what Miles Horton, the founder of the Highlander Folk School, called the long haul of not just trying to found something that's going to work in the next year, but work in the next 10 years or maybe the next 50 years. That's a really hard question, but I have a couple of thoughts about it. And I think the audience will probably also have uh, good thoughts about it too. Uh, one of the things that when you're trying to reconcile a contradiction, reconcile an injustice, we get very immersed in the moment in which the injustice is taking place or has already taken place. So one of the things I was thinking about when researching the book is the difference between what I qualify as activism and advocacy. And it's more of a thought experiment than a definition about what each mean. But a lot of what happens in social justice work is that we identify things as they're happening, some kind of major crisis, or we look backwards and say, well, that was wrong in the past. But it's very hard on the left to be a step ahead, which is something that the right is actually very good at, which is organizing strategically so that different benchmarks are already preset before a regulation is passed, before some kind of institutional decision takes place. And so an advocacy for me is like a system building approach to materializing a vision within an institutional practice that sustains itself or outlives an individual agent. And one thing I thought about a lot too, since it's so hard to find a single agent to trace this history through, 
is that there's a kind of like vanity of the left by which people want to feel as though they've accomplished things. But sometimes actually the biggest accomplishments are the ones in which you are forgotten, but all of the groundwork that you laid lives on beyond you. So if mass media begins in the early 1920s and you don't have a public broadcasting act until 1967, 40-something years, how did this movement live on without an individual figure to trace it through? And that's what we were talking about before with mission statements and concepts that people can then tune into and begin to work towards those common goals. But I think that also reveals something fundamental about strategy. And I think strategy is really where uh, social justice work uh, should be focusing on more in light of the sort of reactionary time in which we're dwelling. And so it really begins with logistics. And when you look at this history, one of the more persuasive aspects of the equal access to education through technology concept as it resonates through the history comes in the continuous reference back to the original law by which educational stations lost their licenses. So I'll, I'll clarify that a little. They lost it on the basis they couldn't meet the public interest convenience necessity, technocratic, how do, do you have a working transmitter? Or is, are you on a certain number of hours a day issue? And every time they succeed historically at getting a policy changed, they being the educators and reformers, media reformers, it's because they're appealing back to that law as though the consequence of educational access is not being met by regulation. So I won't name all the laws because it's really boring. But what essentially happens is before 34, it's more rhetorical. Everyone should have equal access and the government should provide these frequencies for us. And then after 34, they begin to actually build these alternative structures by which no advertising dollars are needed. And there's like some ingenuity there. We're gonna create different genres and then we're going to point to the law at the state and the national level for ways that the law can now serve this expanding implementation. And so I think that that turn to the logistics that make things sustainable beyond the concept provides a certain kind of lesson, even though it's a kind of a contradictory history in itself, which we haven't quite talked about yet, but it is very a white dude, <laughs> you know, historically, there's, it's not the most diverse history, even if the concept was progressive. And what, one of the things I point to in the book is that this concept in the 30s, so 20 years before Brown versus the Board of Education. But then you also, as you're doing this history, wonder where some of the other diverse voices might have been in the infrastructure. And then yet at the same time, nonetheless, they had this sense that uh, to be in for the long haul, there has to be something that outlives the individual. And I think that there's something there in, that shows us how strategy can be implemented. There, there's another aspect that arose for me in reading your book, The Shadow of the New Deal. And I, I want to ask you about it because it, it touches on what you were just saying, but it also pushes us in a slightly different direction. So we talked in the early part of the conversation about this kind of almost libertarian impulse or approach to the airwaves by some of the commercial broadcasters and that was reined in to some extent by these laws that we've been talking about. But I really left your book, The Shadow of the New Deal, with an impression that public broadcasting, educational broadcasting as we have it today, in some ways it really benefited from the competition with the commercial broadcasters, and it learned from in that competitive space from the 
commercial broadcasters. But it also seems, just as you said, it keeps looking back at that 1927 law that initially stripped all the licenses away from the majority of the educational stations. In some ways, the obstacles have really helped to shape the positive face of public broadcasting today. Now, when I say that back to you as a reader of your book, am I misunderstanding the thrust of your analysis? Or is this something that is in some way in concert with the observations that you've made? Yeah, no, I think that's a beautiful point in a way. Uh, and, and of course, I would say there's a variable there, which is the will. Like, how do you build political will for something to be implemented? And I think that there's an entirely different mindset uh, to that. So if you take a, a, a typical activist view that I would often take and say, okay, we're going to create more consciousness or awareness about a problem. Typically, that means it's already happened and you didn't get out ahead of it. You already lost in a way, and now we got to fix it. And so you think, well, what does it mean to lay down groundwork that will outlive you? And what does it look like if it succeeds? And so I think like it's actually, there's an inversion there uh, that I talk about very briefly in the book. It's more of a history book than a theory book. But when, you know, an activism succeeds or an advocacy, as I say it, succeeds, it actually doesn't look like this very conspicuous activist awareness making rhetoric anymore. It looks something more like the mundanity or banalities of everyday life. So I think like one of the philosophical takeaways of what it means to do long-term activist work, if we look at these histories, is that if you succeed, it's not that things will seem so obvious to everyone that you did succeed. It's that they will live it and claim it as their own work, like they being whoever picks up on the mission. So the goal of a good activism isn't things being louder and more apparent. It's that things seem as though that's how they should be. And so, yeah, I think when we are thinking about this history, that, that does, it kind of emerges through trial and error and not necessarily through vision in this case. But nonetheless, you have this moment in 1967 where instead of competing anymore, you have educators who have been given their own space to continue with this work. Well, and one, one thing I want to come back to, and I, I'm really enjoying the turn that our conversation has taken, I want to return to something that you said a few moments ago. You used the phrase materializing a vision as an institutional practice. In other words, taking something like a mission statement and putting it into the practical everydayness of we have a, a broadcast schedule, we have a certain wattage for our transmissions, we have uh, an infrastructure at the station to make sure that these sorts of things can be maintained at a certain aesthetic quality. You and I are speaking right now at yet another junction point in the materialization of broadcast. So we have gone through a moment where the old airwaves are less and less relevant, and now those organizations that had been part of terrestrial broadcast are now involved in things like internet broadcasting and streaming, and in, in many cases with the rise of new revenue models, almost a paywalled or pay-to-play kind of approach to this content. And I, I wonder, as you're looking back at the history that you have talked about so effectively in Shadow of the New Deal, can some of this history that you've found in these archives help us to make sense of 
the material transformations that are happening at this moment and what they might mean for things like the public sphere, what they might mean for the kind of support of democracy by making sure that people can have equal access to information that isn't propagandistic. I I wonder what you think about the kind of upheaval that we're in right now with regard to the material structures of listening. Yeah, well, it's deep. So (laughs) let's uh, go back to 67. So one of the things that the Public Broadcasting Act does is it removes the need for competition, which goes back to your last question. And when it does so, it creates a, a block grant system that goes through the Corporation of Public Broadcasting that, that can then go to third-party and affiliate producers. Um, that's more of like a logistical point in itself. But at the same time, when public media is formed, it, the, the onus for commercial media to have any investments in public service is removed. So one of the, the, the like a paradox in which the moment that's achieved after 40 years uh, changes the public understanding of the responsibilities of commercial media at the same time. So it's like a win and a loss, I think, historically there. And then what happens is when you hit the 90s again, the digital emerges, which changes distribution models. NPR very brilliantly realizes that radio can expand its footprint by associating with the digital and that the digital had not been defined as a third medium after radio and television, that it was more of like a remediating medium. It could do all of it in in different ways. And then so when that happens, it actually does two things. One is it accidentally breaks down the public service model so that podcasts can have advertisers. It's not exactly advertisers. Before that, they would have called it underwriting. So there's there are rules to the limits of what can be done for calls to action with non-commercial support. But now it's pretty much an advertising genre medium that exchanges with Gimlet and other kinds of broadcasting, podcasting groups. So I'm not sure that's uh, the best turn for non-commercial media, but you got to find money somewhere. But the other thing that happens, which is quite positive, is that there's this initial concept. And you mentioned Bill Simmering before, who's become a friend over the years, and he's an inspiration in a lot of ways, is that the notion that an educational approach is reaching every possible audience no matter what the size is or what the embodiment is actually made more possible with the podcasting structure than it is with a simple 24-hour stream on a single radio station. You can have all kinds of non-appointment listening podcasts that could reach every possible audience. And I think that in a way that could better fulfill the mission statement in the long run than some of how broadcasting has worked historically to this point. And then also on that point, and the final point about that is that Besides commercial broadcasters not having the same responsibility to the public after this public media, you also actually sever public media from education. And that's where the book kind of ends, which is this notion that this was all good. We finally have a public system. We should have had one in the first place if it was educational or something similar. But public media was completely intertwined with the educational missions of equal access to education until 1967. And then it actually becomes more of like a competitor with commercial media and then and also reflective of the BBC in a lot of good ways too. They have these like sort of other kinds of world models for public service media that are implemented. But I wonder like why did public media rarely turn back to education when you have exactly the kind of diverse audience that their mission statement requires? 
Education has an unending and renewable audience. It has extreme diversity in the best possible way. Every possible student coming up is accounted for if they were to try to reach them. And a lot of the funding that came to non-commercial media and public media was through educational policy. So they lost this opportunity with the Public Broadcasting Act to access not only audiences, but also certain kinds of funding. And it's really underfunded still, in my opinion. I think it should be at least tripled by Democrats, and I don't know why they won't do that. And you think that they would be supporting it better so that it was more sustainable, but it just chugs along. And NPR is pretty solid and, and stable, but PBS, it's expensive to make television. And so PBS has a lot of troubles now and has to do all those fundraisers all the time uh, in terms of maintaining. So yeah, I think that what you have here historically is that every time there's a change in regulation or in interface, is it digital, is it analog, we're presented with a new way to reinterpret a mission statement. And to this point, it's survived, but I also think it's endangered. And I guess this will be my last question to you, because now I look at a platform like YouTube and I see a lot of people utilizing short and medium form video for a kind of entertaining educational content. And I'm wondering, to your point, that, that public broadcasting currently has a vibrancy, but also in some ways a stagnancy. In the same way that it looked to the aesthetics of commercial broadcasting, is something like this new media platform like YouTube a source for aesthetic renewal for the kind of recombination of public broadcasting and educational broadcasting that you're talking about here at the end of your book, Shadow of the New Deal? Yeah, so I'm actually, I'm a media studies professor, so I'm always fundamentally idealistic about what's possible with media. There's certainly many regressions and reproductions uh, that can happen through media. We don't have to get into that. That's probably a different show for you. But I think the answer is yes, TikTok, YouTube, any sort of way of reaching an audience, especially disenfranchised or under-attracted audience, is a good thing for a specific mission statement. So I think that the short form kind of content is going to innovate PBS eventually. And I, I can't name names. I was talking to a retired and longtime public media person uh, that people may or may not know the name of, but it was there from the start. And they were saying that PBS will probably eventually only be streaming and probably not be as terrestrial or the terrestrial will be almost like a syndication model all things. It's just too hard to maintain the day-to-day -day operations with television when the states are removing the funding. So then you look at these other sources and you realize that there's like almost nearly infinite possibilities for duration, style, genre, global reach through YouTube and all these kind of things. And it seems to me that if the vision moves in that direction, that will actually have uh, equal and even more innovative content in the near future. Well, Josh Shepard, your book, Shadow of the New Deal, as I said at the outset of our conversation, it hit all the buttons for me. It was the right amount of nerdy archival digging into the research, and then it had these really amazing synthetic connections from the data that you pulled out. And it, it was just such an enjoyable read. It is so clear, and it helped me to see things that I hadn't seen before here in a medium where I've spent a good chunk of my life. I can't thank you enough for the time and the effort that it clearly took to pull this book together, but thank you especially for taking the time today 
to talk about it with me and my listeners. Thank you for having me. We've been speaking today with Josh Shepard. He's an assistant professor of media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder and director of the Sound Submissions Project at the Library of Congress. He's also a founding associate editor at Resonance, the journal of sound and culture at the University of California Press. Today, we've been talking about his recent book, Shadow of the New Deal, The Victory of Public Broadcasting. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.